Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Hey, is this thing on? That, there you go. Hi, Holly. How are you? <laughs> uh, my name is Greg Wilhelm. I'm the executive director of City Lit Project. And as you might have heard me announce downstairs, uh, the Pratt Library, for some insane reason, gives this organization carte blanche to run the library. So uh, this is the 11th time, the 11th April, that City Lit uh, Festival has taken place here. And um, so welcome, and thank you very much for being part of this program. Um, I'm also sort of kind of quasi part of the academic world. So I always like to partner with the English departments and the creative writing departments of all the institutions around Baltimore to uh, highlight the faculty and the students from those institutions. Uh, so it is my uh, great privilege to be um, partnering with uh, UMBC today as we um, have uh, three great writers uh, from that institution. Um, and I also like, like to highlight these institutions because often we forget that there are, because UMBC you think about the tech and the research and that kind of stuff, but you, and, and you forget that they're phenomenal writers uh, teaching uh, at that, that institution as well. So I'm going to introduce you to uh, someone who I uh, actually probably spend more time catching up with in airports um, in between uh, professional meetings and whatnot than we do here in Baltimore. But I've known Leah for a long time, and um, long story short, I'm really glad you've got a great home at UMBC. You know what I'm talking about, and uh, couldn't be uh, more pleased for you. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to turn the rest of the program over to Leah Purpura. Uh, and I think um, uh, one qu quick announcement, I think uh, your book is available downstairs. Uh, so after after this program, um, um, Michael, did you bring any books? Okay. Okay, so we can, after the program, uh, books will be available, definitely at Barnes & Noble for Leah's book, uh, for sales and signing after the program on the first floor. So thanks a lot for that, Leah. Okay, thank you so much. Um, is this good? Is it clicking? Are you, can you hear everything? It's a little fuzzy. Do I need this? Do, do we need uh, I don't think we do. I'm just going to... Of course, the speaker is pointing to the wall. Okay. I mean, even I know that's not good. Okay. How's this? Can you hear fine? Yeah. Uh, uh, I think we're going to forego this. What's that? Entirely. Yeah, sure. Do what do we Okay. Much better. You can hear. It's a small room. Thank you so much for coming out on this very beautiful, I can finally say, spring day uh, to hear Team UMBC read. We have a wide range of genres, nonfiction, fiction, and poetry. And readers, uh, we have faculty readers, student readers, uh, a graduate, and a graduate student faculty hybrid reader, uh, all queued up. We have old pros and folks who are reading for the first time ever. Writing at UMBC is incredibly alive and diverse in all ways. Our students do amazing work, and I am honored to be reading with such accomplished colleagues. I won't take uh, too much more time swooning or praising, but we'll say that when writers work together and act as a community, beautiful and important and memorable things happen. Writing is very solitary, as we all know, and it is also a shared endeavor. Um, when younger writers listen to older writers, they often think to themselves, wow, I hope I can do that someday. And when older writers listen to younger writers, they often think to themselves, well, I hope I don't ever lose that sense of bravery or experimental spirit. 
so we need each other and our creative lives work best when we are alert to each other in all ways. Uh, we'll be introducing each other as we each finish up. So it is my pleasure to present Baltimore's own Michael Fallon. Mike lives happily in Charles Village with his wife Ruth, has taught writing in nearly every form at UMBC for more than a generation, and has written four collections of poetry, A History of the Color Black, The Great Before and After, Since You Have No Body, and House of Forgotten Names, with more to come. So, Mike. Well, first I want to thank Enoch Pratt. Let's not forget him. Oh, that's right. I don't need this right now. You can't use it. I just turned it off. No, no. It's okay. You can hear me in the back. Can you hear me back there? Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, I want to thank Enoch Pratt. And let's not forget about him, right? Yes. Okay. And Leah and Greg and the Pratt Library. Um, I'm going to read a poem from uh, the manuscript I, I have uh, just been working on. I, you know, I can't say it's finished because I keep fiddling with it. It's titled House Forgotten Names, and this poem is from that manuscript. It's a longer poem, so bear with me. This house is made of wine glasses, made of friends and bright words. This house is built on goodbye. <clears throat> My house, with its ceiling of bone, its walls of red meat, heart pumping at the core. House of storms with its windows lashed with rain and its bright sails of laundry. House built of forest, of earth, of leaves. House of ash and rotten timbers. And those who have lived long inside of you, those who may have sheltered there, what of them? House of childhood with its waves of green lawn rolling into forever. How quickly the trees grow, year upon year. House of straw, house of wreaths and candles. And we come at last to that wordlessness where the music stops. And in that moment of pause, a rush of furs and perfume in the hall. A hurrying of topcoats. Year upon year, one more child to hold. One more missing face. And in that moment of pause before the mirror, we embrace, smile, turn and wave, and turn again before the last one turns to lock the door. And we follow one another into the December dark. House of evergreen, house of black cloth, house of dreamwood and blue shadow. O oh, house, the wreckers ball arise at the high feast uninvited. Before the turkey was carved, it came swinging in at the chandelier and took out half the dining room. The guests panicked in all directions, still clutching their silverware. Year upon year, the floodwaters rise, waves lap at the pilings. This house leans on its stilts. This house fills up with drowning. Beneath the rising waters, the blonde head of a child. 
You hear her calling from a far room. You hear her mother sob for air. But as you call, your mouth fills up with anger as you rise and sink among floating bills and mortgages. O house divided, why is it only in the dream that you reach her? This is the house destroyed by water. This house was carried off, far off, into the air. This is the house that burned, is still burning. This is the splintered dream. Wanderer, you have come far. You have wandered with and without hope. You took comfort in the joining of flesh to flesh. You took comfort in the permanence of wood and stone. You long for a place to build a fire and rest. And standing at the door, you never knew, did you, which goodbye was the last, which house was the house of your leaving. A house is a place wherein each rehearses the ritual of his own happiness, of loss and remembrance. Island of light in the darks rising, house of refuge, house of bliss. This is the house of the joining of hands, the house where we cling to each other under the blessed roof, where between dusk and dawn the constellations of our happiness come shining. Ruined of flesh, built on ruins, on earth, on clay, on dust. And those who are not at home, the cold wind blows over them. Their dark windows fill up with frost. One day, house, you will not be home. How strange the empty city of rock and wind. The next reader is uh, Dorothy Stachowiak. Dorothy grew up in Maryland and has lived here all her life. As a child, she loved reading but hated writing. I cannot believe that. (laughs) And now, in addition to being a graduate student in UMBC's text, technology, and literature program, she teaches in the university's English department. Um, I'd like to thank uh, the City Lit Festival and UMBC for um, creating this opportunity to give my first public reading. Um, this is a nonfiction piece that I wrote in um, autumn of 2012, and uh, um, and I've been sort of picking away at it since. Uh, can everyone hear me? Okay. <laughs> Excuse my fussing. Is that better? Okay. All right. Uh, Is that better? No? (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, um, dwarf pear. 
perfect calorie pear tree grew in the front yard of my mother's home. When I was 17, she and I fought about something. It doesn't matter what. What matters is that as her voice rose, shrieking like a raptor, my stomach nodded and my breath came in short gasps. My spit had the acid and iron tang of fear, mood tasting like bottled oxidation. The pH level in the human mouth changes depending on your emotional state. Right then, it was melting my chewing gum to paste. Mom's face flushed so deeply that her freckles connected as she called me a bitch and stalked forward, clawed hands raised. The whites of her eyes showed all around. The lock on my bedroom door had been broken since she kicked it in years ago. There was nowhere to go. Animal fear reared deep inside, but perhaps luckily, when rationality fled out the window, my gaze followed. I looked outside and saw sanctuary. The tree's silvery gray bark had a crackled pattern as small as honeycomb. At eight or so, I had learned to run over tattered crabgrass and buff dirt to launch myself into the branches in one smooth arc. With a swivel, a bend, and a pull, a skilled child could curl at the waist and plant a foot on the branch, recklessly ascending in under a second. Young children don't fear gravity, as mortality is not a consideration when there are trees to be climbed. Inside of the green globe, the leaves muffled all sound. In the few non-drought years, when watering wasn't banned, we fed it well on miracle grow steaks and hose water, and it towered over its once-identical brethren planted in the Rhode Islands in neighbors' yards. In memory, the trunk stands round, straight, and true, shooting up into a spherical explosion of branches, a child's lollipop sketch of a tree. No one could follow me up there. The few friends who tried never really seemed comfortable in my domain. They would lurk like spiders, limbs akimbo to ensure feet and hands were always in contact with four different branches. As hiding places go, it had served admirably for five years of tag and reading alike. It would serve again. Half blind and hysterical, I pounded barefoot across the rocky lawn, jumped, grasped, swung, and landed. Safe. But it was December, and winter was still predictable back then. The bark looked grayer than usual, and with the leaves down and raked, the naked branches seemed less like a ball of green and more like skeletal fingers cupped around me. The tree swayed and creaked in the wind as I crouched near the center. I sniveled, trying to wipe snot away from my nose without making it obvious that's what I was doing. There was little point in hiding in a place silhouetted against the slate sky. My mother calmed herself to the icy silence stage within an hour or so, true to her modus operandi. The bark crumbled under cold, stiff fingers during the descent, and a resolution was born. I moved out a month later. Some of my clothes and several crates of books were too inconvenient to take with me, and had to stay behind in my old closet. The yard was different by the time I went back for them. According to an arborist with whom I once worked, calorie pear trees are known for being congenitally weak in the places where branches meet and merge into one another or into the trunks. While I was away, gale-force winds had cracked my tree irreparably in two. Burly, t-shirted men with chainsaws and stump grinders had come and remedied the problem. The front yard contained only a small heap of dry, butter-yellow sawdust shavings. No shoots emerged from the blasted crabgrass and rocks. The tree bred to beautify prefab suburban housing developments had borne only sterile berries. 
I quit hiding and walked into the house. So next up is Holly. Holly Sneringer earned her MFA at Goucher College. Her work has appeared in various places, most recently in the St. Anne's Review, the Gettysburg Review, the Los Angel and the Los Angeles Review. In fall 2013, she was awarded a Room of Her Own Foundation's Orlando Prize for Creative Nonfiction. Thank you, Dorothy. That. Um, thank you all for coming on this beautiful day, as Leah said. It's a shame to be inside, but nice to be in this venue. Um, so I'm going to start um, with, I'm going to read you uh, two short, short stories. I'm going to deviate a little bit here from what I've been working on and read you some flash fiction um, that's part of a collection I'm currently working on. Um, the first one is called The Shopkeeper. Can you hear me? Okay. Everyone notices she is different now. Talk about intimidating the customers. One can't say she's totally rude. Pleasantries aren't unknown. Yet, it is truly remarkable how she goes on day after day in her bridal shop, not just selling gowns, but seeing the souls of these girls and their mothers. Here she is on a Saturday in her chosen spot behind the counter. She stands the same way in the same position every day, leaning on bony arms and ringless fingers. Where is the swatch? Where anything else? But she isn't going to be unraveled all day. Ava Baptiste, almost anyone would have to admit, used to be well-adjusted, easily pleased. What beautiful blue tool, she might cry. Smell the air. The shop is full of dried roses and the air is sweet and dusty. She's the perfect guesser of dress size and has been known to cast away pregnant brides. But now she worries, shuffling through piles of receipts that she's already been through. And her hands are always moving. First she's pulling and pulling on drawers. Then she wants a satin ribbon or her scissors. Take the bridal party coming up the narrow dark stairs, four girls and a mother. Ava spots the magazine clipping of the wedding gown in the bride-to-be's hand and reaches for it. She gives it back quickly, shaking her head no, watching them, watching them go as the gilt French clock ticks on the wall. Then, later, it turns out she had the dress all along. Straight, beaded, a chiffon sash to wear behind, tied at the small of the back, the veil to match, even the long satin gloves. This happened this morning, so that later, when Ava tidies the three small dressing rooms, the curtained little areas like confessionals, only white, she sits on the stool where the mothers usually sit and weeps. The money I waste like that, careless as a pigeon. 
This means that tonight she'll add the figures on the receipts again, probably four or five times, scribbling away. Perhaps she has already forgotten that she makes more money than most of the merchants on Main Street, and when the question of closing the shops of the shop comes up, you should see her eyes as they dart around the rows and rows and rows of dresses hanging. Okay, and this one is called For Now. For now the snow is not sticking. For now his camera will not be ruined as he points his lens at her from behind. Drawn to the red of her shoes and the blue-black of his own overcoat that she has thrown over her head like a shroud. He's not worried about a ruined camera, it is her mood. He knows the mood, the way it comes on suddenly, in town or at home, and how she can so easily walk away from him after all these years. There will come a time, sometime later that night, when she will try to explain. It had been the children in the park with their games and their runny noses and their bright eyes or the young waitress in the hotel restaurant. How could he not see the resemblance? She will say how sorry she is, again. By then, the snow would have blanketed the streets and he would have put his camera away. He might say that she had ruined another day out. He has said this before. For now, though, he is trying to focus on the shot, trying to capture what is fleeting, the sidewalk glistening, the light changing, his wife stepping through the newly formed puddles, the shape of her. Thank you. And I'd like to introduce Rachel. Rachel Garcia is an undergraduate at UMBC seeking a degree in philosophy. Though she has been writing creatively for 10 years, this is her first experience sharing her work with an audience. reading a selection from my short story titled Chance, which tells the story of Charles Taylor, a shy college student who falls for a girl the moment he sees her in a philosophy class. Through his studies, he finds the courage to declare a major, take a chance on love, and repair his relationship with older brother Danny, a recovering drug addict. It's never been like this before. He's never looked at a girl and seen a future unfold. A series of moments, mundane things like sharing a bench with her outside the campus coffee shop, listening to her talk about her day, or bringing her home to meet Danny when he's sober and the rest of the family for Thanksgiving or Fourth of July. He imagines the shape her body makes when she sleeps, wonders how they'd fit together, wonders what she'd look like without makeup to mask how tired she is. He wants to be there to find out, and he wants to be there for everything else, for every sleepless cramming session and lazy weekend in the dorms, for graduation and whatever comes after. And he feels this every time he sees her, like a memory inside his chest, sparking a fire. When they study Plato's tripartite of the soul, Charles thinks of Chelsea, thinks of the logic hindering his appetitive and spirited desires where she's concerned, and finds himself questioning the utility of reason altogether. At their next class, when Dr. Wong invites discussion over the claim that reason rules in a just soul, Charles raises his hand and says, how can the rational part be the one we're meant to obey when it's the part we struggle against the most? 
Dr. Wong considers him for a moment, as though he doesn't understand the question. Only an unjust person struggles with it, because the parts of his soul don't exist in harmony, he says. But the appetite is desire we have because we're embodied, and the spirit is desire we have because we're socialized, Charles argues. Those are both human conditions, right? Dr. Wong's reply is quick, but are they exclusive to humans? Maybe not, Charles allows, but the rational part is knowledge that we can never fully realize as humans. Isn't that what Plato says, that we strive for the forms, but we'll never get on that level because we're embodied? So it seems like the thing that makes us human isn't the rational part, but the other two parts we have because of those human conditions. And if the rational part isn't essential to our being human, why should we obey it? Dr. Wong nods thoughtfully. I see your point. So then it's kind of useless, isn't it? Charles goes on. Striving for a harmonious soul because the rational part can't be fully understood, at least not until our souls aren't embodied anymore, but then we're no longer human. In other words, there can be no just human, Dr. Wong concludes. I mean, that's kind of a bold claim, Charles says. But then, if it were possible, we wouldn't be debating moral theory thousands of years later. Maybe the struggle is the entire point of being human. If you always know what action is right in any given conflict, is there anything left to strive for? Dr. Wong smiles proudly. An excellent argument, Charles. These are exactly the kinds of questions a philosophy student should be asking. Would anyone else like to agree or disagree? The compliment goes straight to his head, and Charles starts thinking that this is something he might actually be good at, a degree he could earn and be proud of. Maybe Chelsea isn't the only thing he's falling in love with. After midterms, they read utilitarianism. It's not a perfect theory, but Charles finds himself struck by the deconstruction of happiness in Mill's argument. He basically says that happiness is a dynamic state of being, Charles is saying, during one of the best visits he's had with his brother in a while. Not the ideal stagnant bliss we've come to expect. It's not a coda at the end of the story, you know? It's an ongoing thing, a balancing act between pleasurable and painful experiences. That's real deep, Danny says, but he can't keep the grin in his voice from showing. Don't laugh at me, man. I know you think philosophy's useless, but it gives meaning to some of the biggest motivating factors in our lives. Happiness, love, pleasure, wanting to do the right thing. We all make decisions based on these things, but we never really take the time to think about what these things are, do we, Charles says. It's a pointed question, and they both know it. Danny shifts around in his seat, and Charles can practically feel the wall slamming down between them. I didn't mean you, Charles starts. You did, though. Don't lie to me. You of all people don't lie to my face, Danny fires back. Charles lets a sigh drag through him, sinking further into his chair. I just don't understand how this happened, he says, and he feels ten years old again, too young to hang out with his brother's friends, too immature to relate with a group of 16-year-olds. You always told me you had it under control. I mean, you got a diploma, you got a job, we all thought you were okay. Yeah, well, just because something looks one way doesn't mean it is, Danny tells him. Guiltily, Charles can't help but think of Chelsea and all the assumptions he's made about her. She's never given him any reason to think that she won't give him a chance, just like Danny never gave him any reason to think that he was an addict. But here they are. Charles says, was your life really so bad that you couldn't stand to live it? He's not supposed to ask questions like this, not until Danny completes the program. This is for counselors with artful phrasing, for doctors who invest thousands of dollars in schooling to learn how to ask questions like this. But Danny, the Danny he grew up with, the Danny who spent hours after dinner teaching him how to shoot a layup, the Danny who took the blame when Charles backed their mom's car into a fire hydrant, that Danny doesn't beat around the bush, and he wouldn't want Charles to either. It wasn't like that, Danny tells him, and he sounds so tired all of a sudden, like he's exhausted by these words, played them over and over in his head until he found the ones that best expressed what he was feeling when he overdosed. You start small, and then you build up a tolerance. You do it to feel good, but pretty soon the only way you can feel good is when you're high. So you do more, try stronger stuff. 
It's not like you don't know what you're doing, but it's a helpless feeling, not being able to control when you feel good or when you feel bad. I just, Jesus, Charlie, I got so scared not being in control anymore. Charles thinks about Protagoras, that no one knowingly chooses bad things, that people who do are seduced by the immediacy of the good, that they fail to see the harm an action will later cause. He wonders when Danny crossed that line. At what point in life do we bail out of existence? Is it a moment or a series of aborted moments of chances never taken? We're just as responsible for the actions we delay, the risks we never take. Plato wrote that the soul is the source of all movement. When we stop chasing dreams, taking chances, when feeling nothing is better than feeling something, is that when our souls truly die? You get a second chance, Charles says, and he's so grateful that Danny's still here that Charles gets to lean forward and touch his hand, look him in the eyes, and tell him this. Danny nods and wipes the sleeve across his face. The next time he looks at Charles, there's a light in his eyes that Charles hasn't seen in so long, like Danny believes him, like it's occurring to Danny for the very first time. And when Charles gets back to the dorm that night, he prints out a declaration in major form and writes his name and philosophy on the designated lines just to see how it looks. Pretty damn good. Our next reader is H.D. Freeman Jr., who is a 22-year-old person who recently graduated from UMBC. He lives in West Baltimore in a thickly populated row home on a thinly populated block. Currently, he is trying to learn French. Hi, everybody. Um, I just wanted to thank Professor Fallon. Uh, he, he invited me to do this, and he's read a lot of my poetry over the years, probably the most of anybody in the world. So, And uh, Professor Prepare for helping me get all this together. Uh, I have two poems. The first one's called Avoid Nothing. The other night, I discovered a nothing. It was small, young enough, that I could still see its shape burbling in the corner of my room. The nothing was upset, cowering and making squealy sounds. It was trying to hide, but I knew it right away. I gave it and asked what was wrong. Just everything, nothing said. You people want everything. You can't get enough of what I'll never be. Words, matters, emotions, nothing wailed. The endless litany of existence. Just the other day I caught you staring at a cardinal as it bounced, bounced on the thin limb of a tree. How can I compete with that? I can't help but cower and cry when I feel all that presence pressing down on my absence. Nothing kept me up all night, trying to whisper some absence into my head, saying it was preferable to be the blank between two stars or the space that makes a hole. But by daylight, the nothing was gone, sleep had come upon me, and a dream made me fool. I woke, my head fat with the world. Um, so this next poem is, is the scariest poem I've ever written. Think about that. Uh, once when it was middle night and I was half drunk, Biking home around the reservoir, I looked out at the moon-soaked water and saw a bundle of birds that could have been ducks or could have been geese. I stared at them for a while, holding the handlebars with two fingers on one hand, and listened to the calls that should have been geese, and watched the dip of their bodies that should have been ducks. In time, my eyes trailed back to the loop like two rowboats cut loose. Up ahead in the darkness, I saw only the hind parts of a pair of legs that were white by the light of the moon, and they were moving quick, away from the water, across the path of my bike, and hopping and kicking like mad, and pulling rather than pushing. 
and my mind was drawn into a pop-cap flash of preconceptions, approximations, calculations, and settled on the conclusion that the person in front of me was less than half of what I've ever known to be a human being, and the variable of the situation was such that I had no idea what I was looking at, and I was certain that I was terrified. I was about to crash my bike in order to avoid the weight of half-recognition that pressed upon the inside of my helmet. Then the moon brightened as if clearing its throat, and by the light which was louder, I saw the deer that was running towards the grass, away from the water, across the path of my bike, and towards the shadows of his family, which were the only things he knew about in this world, and the only things he could be sure he wasn't afraid of. Thanks. Leah's up next. She's a poet and essayist. Um, she's a new writer in residence at UMBC. Her awards include the Guggenheim and Fulbright Fellowships. She publishes, publishes regularly in The New Yorker, and her last collection of poems, It Shouldn't Have Been Beautiful, is due out next year. She's loving life at her new school. Well, that was, that was great, everyone. Thank you. And I want to thank also Mike Fallon and Sally Shivnan, who really helped me sort of gather all these folks together and figure out how to do this for the first time at UMBC. So I'm, go I'm going to read a short essay and then a few short poems. And this is a little wintry, so it's called gray. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but it is, I, I wanted to read something that was, you know, very uh, Baltimore-based, okay? And the cathedral is Corpus Christi, for those of you who are connected there. Gray. Here's the cathedral. It's gray stone, the gray sky, and all the gray after rain mottled streets. And the sky is not a cathedral bell, but also gray, gray alongside. And the icy puddles are not mirrors of sky, though sky resides in bounded ways there. It is not a cathedral tune, this tone, but the way gray wind and stone cloud together. These grays make up the right now I am in, as does the sharp uncertainty of what to do with two suddenly free hours and nowhere to be. All the likenesses gathering, all the things partaking each of the other, being as one, the many and all, no. Here, beside my uncertainty, where to go, what to do, gray underwing, stone, ice, median grass, just stay, each unto yourself. As you're inclined, hover or seep, crack, harrow or blow. I can tell you in my uncertainty, I won't be listening to wind in gray branches and conjuring far off ocean waves. I won't be revising the phrase, here's the gray weight of a cold afternoon, to an afternoon cold with the weight of gray noon. I want no gray arterial side street contracting with old fraught scenes and no, no one's absence reconstituted by cold. No snow sky hardening its stare. No phrase like grayly they pitched their way forward in cold. 
how it must have been for them in pioneer times, gray woolens, gray blankets, and buffalo skins, the dimming gray sky, a relief from glare, though it meant, of course, more snow coming. I do not mean to synchronize their gray anticipation with my gray anticipation. In this singular moment, I'll have no church bells chased to bird call, no gravely beautiful sidewalk, ice cracked with its palette of grays upriding like little headstones, no minor key wind hum, no cloud spire combo of grays rising up, no parable like breadth to all this, containing, extending, enlarging by grays, I will have just now. All the gray things like only themselves. It's February in Baltimore on Mount Royal Avenue. I've just dropped my son at his Saturday art class. It's almost snowing. Each gray thing in its time, in its place, stands just as it is. Here's the cathedral, and here I am, outside, giving thanks. I'm starting by noting every gray thing. And by thanks, I mean, I admit I know not what to do, where to go, with all I've been given. So that's the short essay that sounds like a poem. And here are a couple short poems that kind of reason, reason through things like an essay. Allegories. That crag in its hunching suggests a shawl under which we can slip our burdens since we alone among creatures bestow likenesses for assurance we really exist and name boulders and peaks, widows this, widows that, so others might navigate by the forms of our grief. And this last one is called Belief, and it's um, really a, a poet's attempt at understanding and holding on to basic physics. Um, those classes that were called, you know, rocks for jocks or, you know, geology for poets, they're really helpful, <laughs> I have to say. Belief. Light being wavy and particulate at once is instructive. Why wouldn't other things or states present as both and. For instance, I both believe and can't. Holding these together produces a wobble I think it's time to take seriously as a stance. So thank you all so much for coming. And we have about 10 minutes, um, and if you'd like to talk with any of the readers, or have a question for any of them, they didn't know I was gonna spring this on them, but I am, please feel free. Is there anything you'd like to ask anyone?
I want to say, if you have a form uh, for the program, we'd love to get it back. Yes, hand in your homework. You should feel free to casually come up and talk with us as we have a go with those cookies and, and coffee. Thanks again for coming.